Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. It's the end of 2021. While the year perhaps has not been as dramatic as 2020, it's still been an eventful one. We get another all-star panel to discuss what's happened and give insights into what's going to happen in 2022. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, everybody, to our year-end panel edition of the EIS Navigator. I'm delighted to welcome back Mark Brownridge, who is Director General of the EIS Association, Keelan Doyle, who is Director at Seven Capital, and for his first appearance on the podcast, we have Neil Cole, who is Head of Wealth Planning Solutions at UBS Wealth Management. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hello. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. As usual, we'd like to get every, give everybody a chance to learn a little bit more about you, although I mean, I'm sure everybody's listened to the last year's year-end panel, so hopefully we'll know a couple of you already. Uh, shall we start with Mark? Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in Venture Capital? Yeah, feels a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, but yeah, I'll go for it. Um, so yeah, my name's Mark Brownridge. I'm Director General of uh, the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association, at least for the next month or so. So ESA, or as we're better known, we're the trade body for the EIS and SEIC industry. So, so we do primarily two things. One is to work with government and Treasury and SCA and HMRC. So, so all the fun people really um, looking at legislation for the schemes. Um, so obviously we're trying to make it bigger, better and more effective. And then the other side of what we do is just awareness of the schemes. So trying to get more investors aware, more companies aware, uh, and everyone who's kind of in between one of those two things. So, so we act as a bit of a hub, uh, a bit of a network, trying to bring all those different elements together to help companies raise money, really. Great. And Keelan? Um, hi, I'm Keelan Doyle. I'm co-founder of Simman Capital. Simman is a, I suppose, a medium-sized uh, fund manager in the EIS space. We also do SEIS investing. We've been in this space since 2014. We're, we're a technology fund manager. We've always had the same approach. We've always specialized in technology, and uh, a number of the principals and other senior figures have been involved in these markets since the 1990s, so we have a, a little bit of experience. But we primarily focus in terms of what our expertise is, is I suppose business-to-business software. We do some other technology, but we don't concentrate on things like life sciences or university spin-outs. Great. And Neil? Yeah, thanks, Brian. My name's Neil Cole. I've worked at UBS Wealth Management for nearly 10 years now. I've got the role of head of Wealth Planning Solutions, which means I look after the panels of what we refer to as wealth planning products that we make available to our private clients. Um, and that includes uh, boring stuff like offshore bonds and pensions. Um, and it includes much more interesting stuff, uh, personally anyway, uh, such as venture capital. So we have panels of VCTs, EIS, IHT products. My role is really meeting with everyone that's raising money in, in that space, try and get an understanding of kind of what they do, the trends, the strategy, the track record, the performance, and, and try and select what we believe to be the kind of the best managers out there to, to put on a panel in, in front of our clients. Mm-hmm. Great. So the perceptive will have noticed that we have a cross-section of the industry here with a fund manager, someone from the advisory side, and someone from the, associate, the trade body, which sort of covers everything. So hopefully we'll get a broad perspective. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot about what we've what's happened the last year or so and we'll also do a little at the end we'll do a little bit of looking forwards and see what's coming so let's start on fundraising which has obviously been a hot topic 
Should we start with Mark? Do you want to give an overview of how you've seen the fundraising year? Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, probably no great surprise that fundraising has been easier this year than it has the previous year, given that last year was COVID. And, and, and I guess going back to that, in March 2020 was just a, just a horror show, really. Fundraising kind of fell off the side of a cliff. Understandably, as people kind of took risk off the table and, and EIS, VCTs, you know, obviously being risky investments, uh, investors kind of ran for the hills a little bit at that time. Um, I think this year that that's kind of bounced back. It'd be interesting to hear what... Neil and, and Keelan had to say about that, but it feels like it's bounced back a little bit this year. Investors starting to come back to the risk table, starting to look at this area again, uh, and particularly actually because you know we see during a crisis that quite often what happens is that big companies get born out of a crisis. And so I think investors are starting to see opportunities. They're, under, they're starting to understand the area a little bit better. So yeah, as far as I can tell, and we're always behind with the official figures from HMRC, so we won't know for another kind of year or so what the actual official figures are. But, but kind of anecdotally, it seems to have bounced back quite strongly from where it was in 2020. Yeah, yeah. What are you seeing, Neil? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think for this tax year, if I if I think back to where we were last year, we've raised about four four times more than we had at this time last year. Um, and that's our, our clients investing, looking specifically at VCT and EIS, of course. So about four times more has been invested into the products now than, than this point last year. I think the big difference that we've seen is whereas historically kind of January to April has been the main fundraising season for, for VCT and EIS products. They've now become much more of an all-year-round offering. And in fact, we've seen huge inflows uh, since September, really. We, we launched a VCT panel in September. And um, as I'm, I know we're going to come on to talk about specific f- sort of fundraising stories, but it's amazing how quickly a lot of VCTs are filled. And really, people are trying to get in early. They're seeing the opportunity. And like, actually, why wait till the end of March and have all the pressures of the tax year deadline? Actually, why not get involved now? Your money gets to work sooner. Uh, you get the tax relief in theory you get the tax relief sooner and it just means you, you don't have to worry about it after christmas so we're, we're certainly seeing that trend and yeah the, the money's really mm-hmm. flowing how's your experience been keelan I, I i suppose uh, very similar to what's been discussed last march in 2020 it was a disaster i mean for the first time we actually had people because we do quarterly investments we sort of spent three months raising money and then invested and we actually had people for the first time ever <laughs> withdraw money before we were about to invest in it uh, b- before April 5th last year. It was pretty grim for a few months in terms of fundraising. And it started, uh, I guess, last summer coming back a little bit. But this year has been a, t- a terrific improvement. I think it's going to end with a real on a really strong note because I think VCT is sort of st- stolen everybody's thunder this, this uh, autumn. But the market has definitely been coming back you know, throughout the year. So I anticipate a good strong end to the year. Sorry, Brian, I know this is your show. Can I ask Akilah a question? Then? Go on. Um, would you say uh, fundraising levels are back to pre-pandemic levels or is it still a little bit below? Or Yeah, I think for us, they, they, they are. Yeah. And I think maybe even strengthening. Now, maybe that's possibly to do with the fact that we've become more mature as a company as well. Um, so I wouldn't want to speculate on that. But yeah, I think uh, I think it's pretty well back to where, where it was before. Okay. Thanks. Sorry, Brian. No, that's okay. I was uh, going to ask exactly the same question. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, certainly the, the easy data point that we see, which Neil alluded to, was VCTs. And we've seen VCT offers, frankly, fly off the shelves in the last six months. I think the first one in the summer was a Matty, which disappeared in five days. And since then, pretty much everything has done really pretty well and better than expected. And probably there's a little bit of fear of missing out now the first you know now we've seen one offer go well people are trying to get into others pretty quickly so mark's out a couple of ideas uh, what do we think is driving this 
what is the real driver? Is it, is it secular? Is it cyclical? What's going on? Personally, I think it's performance. Um, I think since the pandemic, and this, this was mentioned earlier on, that we've seen a lot of good companies kind of born and developed during the, during the pandemic. And we're seeing the sort of smaller, particularly smaller tech-enabled businesses really take advantage of the pandemic and thrive as a result. Um, and the, it's really feeding through into the performance numbers. And we've seen a number of really significant exits where young tech companies have been bought by either larger private equity groups or, or um, just through trade sales in the industry. And and that's delivering really compelling returns back to the people that backed venture capital a, a number of years ago. And I think as much as we um, we try and tell our clients that past performance is not a guide to, to future returns, um, people do buy on performance. And they're looking at VCTs that, I mean, in the case of some of the AIM VCTs, are up 70 75% in 12 months. And even some of the VCTs that are backing private companies, they've seen valuation uplifts of 25 30% or even higher, as well as generating that kind of tax-free yield. And I think people will always buy strong performance and I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. Do you think there's a danger of performance chasing then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, ju- I try, try my hardest. Oh, unrealistic expectations. I, I try my hardest to set expectations that VCTs are not going to do 75% every year. <laughs> but I think some people I think some people believe it. There, there, is, there is an element of that. Um, and I know, again, we'll probably come on to talk about valuations, but there is a real risk that I think valuations have hit, I hate to use the B word, but possibly a little bit of a bubble in some places because we've seen some enormous uplifts in, uh, in valuations, particularly in young tech companies. And at the moment, there does seem to be the demand that's, that's supporting that. But we should be conscious that, yeah, it's not going to go on forever. Um, we're not going to see that sort of return re- repeated year after year. Yeah. So, Keelan, why do you think investors are coming back to your funds? I mean, you mentioned maturing, your, your company's maturity, maturing, but, yeah, I, th- I think there's more than that going on. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there's something during the pandemic that they called the stay-at-home trade. So say, for instance, I know a listed fund that bought Ocado when the, the crisis started. I did very well and sold out before, you know, at the right time. And that was something that, you know, Ocado may be on a secular uplift anyway, but there's definitely, a, you know, gaming may be another sector where there was a clear, uh, should I say, temporary uh, boost that maybe um, maybe wouldn't last. But we, what we've noticed is that, um, or not last, but recede. What we notice is, I guess, what we call is the future is now trade, where we've had companies where you'd be trying to convince enterprises to digitize whatever uh, aspect of their business. And the, the their hand was forced by uh, the, the pandemic. So to give you one example of a company that deals in insurance claims, you know, insurance claims are handled by call centers globally and uh, really stuck back back in the past. And uh, a lot of these companies were in real uh, w- w- trouble. So for instance, one of the largest UK carriers found out that most of their staff didn't have laptops, didn't have proper broadband connections, and how do you work from home in that environment? And that forced the, the digital conversation. So it, there was a real sort of push towards adopting technology that a lot of our companies did very well at. I mean, in March uh, 2020, we, we were planning to invest in 14 companies and we trimmed that down to 10. And we were really concerned that we were going to give someone money and they'd be going bust in six months. And so we came up with this survival exercise, I'm sure everybody else did. You know, at the end of the year, the portfolio was up 25%. So not the 75% that Neil was talking about, but um, but they've continued to go up since then. So, yeah, I think that performance and just if hopefully you're in the right place at the right time. So we actually came out of the corona. Uh, a lot of our companies did have a, a blip because a lot of enterprises, you know, froze their budget. But overall, it's been a very good thing for most of our companies. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly I do wonder if there's a little bit of a Zoom factor going on in investing. It's the simple fact that technology and specifically is actually in people's faces literally all the time. I mean, here, here we are recording a podcast. None of us are in the same room. We can all see each other on the screen. And, and, and this is just now a factor of life. And people see that and want to invest in that. Do you think that's significant? Yeah, I think that's that's very, very true. And I think another uh, quite topical example of that, um, I don't know if you guys saw the sale of Interactive Investor yesterday, uh, which was bought by, by Aberdeen or Aberdeen, however you, you pronounce it now. But they've, they've paid a huge amount of money for an online investing platform because, again, that's been one of the real sort of trends over the last 18 months of people have had time at home. They've learned how to do these things themselves and they're looking for the technology to enable them to, to do their own investments. And they were an EIS company not long ago. And I think some of their early investors in, into Interactive Investor themselves as in as in the company have made about 25 times return on that that transaction yesterday which is a, a, again a, a, just an amazing return for people that were brave enough to go into early stage ventures mm-hmm. sort of eight nine years ago yeah yeah mark what do you see as driving investors decisions about investing just now uh i think i think a lot of the vct stuff i think neil's talks about performance a lot of it i think individuals that we talk to particularly investors is around just the ease of investing I think a lot of them see it as easier to invest in VCT. Obviously, there's less forms to fill in, there's less admin, um, so it's slightly easier on that front. And also, there's a kind of perceived risk element as well. Again, VCT has always been seen kind of later stage companies, so there are probably more of them in your portfolio. You probably have 28 or 30 VCT companies, whereas you probably have eight or nine in an EIS portfolio. So you're getting more diversification in one fund, uh, perhaps spreading your risk out a little bit. So I think probably those two things are quite still foremost in investors' mind when they look at VCTs over EIS. But yeah, it's certainly staggering to see the numbers that are going VCT so quickly. So, so from that, it sounds like you think that what we're seeing in VCTs will not be replicated the same way in EIS. I don't think so. I don't think there'll be kind of that wall of money that we're seeing with VCT in such a short space of time. It tends to be kind of more spread out in EIS. And so EIS generally raises more over the course of a tax year than VCT does, and probably almost double actually. But don't forget, VCT is all funds, and so it's all private investors. It's generally investors through an IFA. Um, whereas in the EIS world, there's a lot of single company investment, a lot of angel investment, a lot of um, high net worth individual investment. Obviously, you've got Cedars and Crowdcube and those kind of guys and girls these days. So it's not just funds. But I think, I think one thing we've seen with VCTs is, do you know what, VCT and EIS pretty much invest in the same thing these days uh, since the patient capital review. So, you know, you get your great dividends with VCTs, but they're going to be falling away over the next two or three years. So those kind of six, seven, eight percent that you're seeing at the moment, uh, they may well be two, three percent in a couple of years if you're lucky. And so I think actually as an investment uh, vehicle, the, the investment itself, it's going to be quite similar what you're seeing in terms of one companies and two um, the type of returns. So I think that'd be an interesting environment um, in two, three years' time and how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, Brian. I think one thing that's kind of interesting in, in the market uh, coming back is it's very different to the aftermath of the 2008, 2009 the last time we had a crisis that it took the venture market years to come back after that whereas we've really snapped back very quickly following this pandemic mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's it's been kind of intriguing because certainly i get the pitch book emails every day and i was really intrigued that all throughout 2020 it seemed like there was another i mean they're more focused on p venture capital but even so you still see another fund being raised with lots of money going into sort of private equity or, 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 or venture capital. The headlines have not been so strong this year, but the data suggests we're still seeing a lot of flow into that. 
And we've got this kind of wall of money for quantitative easings, pandemic support. And I think venture capital in particular is not the biggest market in, in a global context. And you don't need much surplus money spilling over in that to sort of say, okay, there, there's, there's, there's sort of capital coming. You know, how, how that interacts, you know, that, that's the sort of institutional market as opposed to this is very much a retail market, which has different effects. Yeah, I guess there's a trickle-down effect there, isn't there? Because, again, we get Boho's figures. So we see that I think there was £17.9 billion that went into small companies this year from, from private equity in BC. So that's been a record year. I think that's almost double the next biggest year. So, again, that's probably a little bit of stuff not being done last year because of COVID and kind of bouncing back from that. But, yeah, it certainly seems like this market is super buoyant in terms of smaller companies and, and what they're looking to do. But I think that will slowly kind of trickle down from institutional investors into, into kind of our world with private investors. So, yeah, maybe not this year, maybe not the next, but I think it's probably hopefully a coming force. But this is possibly a little bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to pick up on Mark's point about um, the differences between VCT and EIS and, and the increasing kind of similarity we're seeing. Um, and I completely agree that the underlyings are, are exactly the same now. And I think the real evidence of that is now the number of managers that are trying to do both. So actually have the same investment strategy, but use both wrappers. Uh, Dre Prosperi, a good example, Mercy or another, where actually they're, they're seeing the, the same investment strategy, but the benefit of having the two different wrappers so that it can suit different types of investor. But you're absolutely right. What investors need to realise is that the returns are going to look broadly similar as well in that you will still get a yield from VCTs, but it will be much more dependent on performance. It won't be this consistent 5 6 7% year in, year out. It, and this is where manager selection will become really, really key and actually picking the, the good managers that, are, that have got a good maturing portfolio already and are able to actually get the exits in order to continue to fund that performance. But people, investors need to realise that returns are going to be purely driven by the buying and selling of companies and if, if if managers aren't able to sell companies at a good price they're not going to be paying dividends and i think it's, that's a, a very important thing for people to know yeah i think the challenge for a lot of vcts is to some extent the new assets should actually deliver better particularly for those who switched from the old asset you know the, the sort of mbos or the sort of asset backed the returns in their assets over the piece should be higher so i do wonder if some vcts are actually thinking well if i'm delivering 15% on my risk assets. Maybe I can still, you know, even allowing for cash friction and expenses, I can still do a 5% dividend with occasional specials and keep that constant dividend, but uh, there'll be a, a much more volatile special sort of coming on top of that. I, I don't hear people speaking so much about that, but I do wonder if that's at the back of minds. It's the back of minds. I think it's uh, a, a quite a risky way of thinking because I think you can deplete your reserves very quickly if you if you're committing to paying out that five percent a year. Um, but again, it does depend on the quality of the manager and the good managers will be able to sell companies, bank some of that as reserves, and use that to fund that that consistent dividend. So there will still be an element of that. But the the managers that are struggling to get the exits will certainly struggle to to pay any sort of consistent yield. I was going to say one of the things I've noticed with VCTs, which may be related, is that since they are looking at companies that we invest in is that they want a lower return, but more quickly. In other words, they don't want to wait for the sort of 10x. They'd rather have a three-year trade where they can get out and, you know, at 3x or 4x. Now, I'm not sure how related that is to rather than our approach, which is more to wait for a longer period of time to get a higher return. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on your influence and how much you can influence a company to actually exit, because I don't think, and I, I think this one thing the industry wrestles with is that the industry cannot drive the exits the way it would necessarily like to. 
True, but sometimes people come with minority stakes who are trying to drag an exit, which hasn't gone down well necessarily with all companies. So, so it's clearly on their minds. I think another issue for VCTs is, you know, it's great to raise, I think, uh, well, we saw a presentation about Oxford the other week, I think they said they raised 100 million in 20 days, Keen. I think I'm right in saying that, but so that's great, but obviously you've got to deploy that money, so there can be a bit of a lag for investors, it's great getting 100 million, but you've got to invest it at some point, that's generally not done in one day or two days, so, you know, how long is it going to take Octopus to invest that money? Is it going to take months, two months, 12 years, 12 months? And obviously, that's all dependent on, for you as an investor, on, on how long your return's going to be coming through, and, and how that's going to be played out at the end of it all. So, so it's, yeah, whilst it's great to get a wall of money, that I think that comes with its own particular issues and problems at the same time. Yeah, I, I think I think the headline I saw was actually 200 million and they're raising one in EIS as well. But you know, is, do you think there's some VC managers saying it's as hot as it's ever going to be? Let's get a bit of money in because maybe in a year or two's time, it's going to be a bit tougher. I, I think every single VCT out there has come out this year or announced that they're coming out this year i don't think there'll be a single offer that, that takes takes a year out which is very unusual normally you get a good sort of mix of managers from year to year and some managers very sensibly keep their powder dry and say no we're not going to raise any new money this year because we've either still got cash from last year or we've got cash from exits but we, we're not going to raise new money this year i think there's definitely an element of again sorry a word with negative connotations but a little bit of bandwagon jumping that a lot of uh, vct managers have seen that this is the year when it's the first time in record i think the f even the FT is publishing positive stories about VCTs, and there's a huge level of huge level of demand as a result of that. And managers don't want to miss out. So I guess this leads naturally on to we're raising lots of money from investors, or at least VCTs are deploying it. Then, and, and Mark alluded, this might become a challenge. We'll start with Keelan. How have you seen the market for actually deploying money investment this year, and what's the flow of opportunities and things? Neil alluded to the B word. I think we're very firmly, um, having seen a few Bs in my time, it's valuations are not sensible right now. And it's a very, it's a real challenge because uh, it reminds me of Chuck Prince, you know, who's head of Citibank and famously those words that came back to bite him, which was, uh, you've got to, you know, well, you've got to keep dancing while the music's playing. And that was just before the 2008 crisis and, uh, you know, and getting involved in some of the financial instruments at that time. Valuations are really, really stretched, particularly sort of about A and above. But, but even down to sort of there seems to be a lot more angel participation. And you see even some of the early stage SEIS investments we look at are, are, are challenging. And we've walked away from way more investments than is normal. On valuation, usually there's a mix of reasons why you walk away, and, and it's a lot of it has been because of valuation. So I do think we have a valuation issue. I mean, we spend a lot of time on this on this issue because we're determined not to overpay, and we probably do overpay a bit. You know, you have to make that decision where you probably do overpay a little bit, but you hopefully you don't overpay too much because you do have money to deploy. It's it's tough right now for a manager. Yeah, yeah. How how, how do you see things, Neil? What are people saying to you? So, so how we see things, I think when, when I'm looking at the cash levels that a, that a manager has and, and how they're deploying it, I think one very important factor is how big an existing portfolio they've got and what sort of follow-ons they're doing. Because what we've seen certainly over the last 12 months is a lot of follow-on financing, which for the likes of Octopus, I mean, they raised 200 million. I don't think much of that will go into brand new deals. I think actually they've got a big a big portfolio now that, of, of cash-hungry companies that, that are going to need those follow-on rounds of funding. So, and 
again, there's, a, there's an element that the valuations of these existing companies may be, may be slightly inflated, but actually, if they're already an existing investor in those companies, then actually providing that follow-on finance can, can make good investment sense. And um, we've seen, seen a, a good chunk of that. In terms of new deals, it's definitely been slower than the industry would like. For the amount of money that's being raised, we've seen notice a number of managers visibly slow down their deployment. And I think there's an element of being sensible, as Keelan says. So the good managers are walking away from the sky-high valuations, which is absolutely what we want to see them do um so i don't necessarily if i if i see a manager hasn't invested any money for six months i want to look into it but it's not necessarily a negative on that manager because actually if they're doing the sensible thing and they're walking away from sky high valuations that's a good thing for for investors so again it comes down to the the, the manager selection really and, and making sure that you're picking managers that are making decisions for the right reason and that are raising the right amounts of cash for the right reason as well uh, yeah, similarly, I think I think yeah, I think deployment has has always been key, particularly with EIS. And yeah, it's all too easy to raise money and just spend it very quickly in, in not very good companies. Um, we can all do that, but it's, it's it's trying to finally balance these things, isn't it? Trying to raise the money, invest it as quickly as possible, but at the same time in good, credible companies that you think are going to go on and do big things. So as Keelan says, that, that they're always prepared to walk away from deals if they think valuations are too high. I think valuations have been too high for probably quite a long time now. Obviously, they dipped a little bit during COVID, but. They were high, but even before COVID, I think. Um, I don't know if Killian agrees with that. But I think what we're seeing is, is managers trying to get quicker, that they understand that the quicker they can get money invested, the quicker you know, the three-year clock starts, the quicker the company gets moving forward and accelerating, and the quicker they get returned back to investors. Because you know we're still far, far better than we were kind of five years ago when I started in this job at, at getting money back to investors. We're still perhaps a little bit away from where we'd like to be. So I think that's going to be the key thing for the next couple of years or so is we'll see, we'll see more exits, We'll see more money being redeployed. I think, um, again, we're doing this roadshow at the moment. I think Mercia said today the first time, first year ever, that they've returned more money to investors than they've raised. So, yeah, that, that's a good story to hear, I think. And I, I think we're increasingly hearing stories like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a challenge for the industry where you're being paid to deploy the money, but the challenge of actually doing so sensibly seemed to be getting harder. But the Mark, you make an interesting point about we, we've been talking about this for a while. I think having said that, valuations have been, seem to have been getting higher for a while over that period or over that period by the pandemic. So it's, if we chat two years ago, I don't think anyone would have mentioned bubble. I think it's always tough in this market with valuations because it is always a bit of a finger in the air job. This isn't a, this isn't a market where you can value daily. It's just you as a company setting your own valuation against a VC who's looking at your company and setting their valuation. So it's always a bit of a, a bit of a talking shop as to where you get to evaluation. If VCs have money and need to deploy, then yeah, they might spend a little bit more on evaluation. So I think that's kind of a, that's, that's what's been happening over the last couple of years. But I think increasingly that we might see a reversal trend in that, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and another question, which I'll maybe put to Keelan is, what sort of quality of companies are you seeing? Is the quality still as good as ever? Is it? Is there just more crap out there? Is there more good stuff out there? How do, how does the market feel? I, I think there's sort of the same mix. You know, there's always been a lot of rubbish out there, or not even so much rubbish. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's oh, that is pretty good, but it's just not going to really make you a lot of money. There's certainly a lot of that. There's some that's just outright not suitable, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. It is for the new companies. I mean, Neil makes the important distinction of we we have a pipeline of companies and it's in our entire philosophy where we follow on through the years where merited. But speaking of identifying the new companies, because you're always looking for new companies, the good ones get, they get bid up pretty quickly and 
you know, you, you have to move quickly. That's that's for sure. But in terms of the spread, I don't really notice that there's more lousy ones or more good ones. There's, it, it's just the good ones get snapped up pretty quickly. And in terms of sort of sentiment, do people feel now we're clearly post-pandemic in terms of investing, or are we still seeing the aftermath of the effects of that? I mean, I know, you know, what, what, I, I drew these questions a couple of weeks ago, and, and then Omicron sort of appeared in the last few days, which has kind of changed the perspective a little bit. Yeah, I think it's too early to say we're, we're post-pandemic, certainly. I think no one knows what's coming around the corner. And we obviously saw saw a, a couple of market blips last week as the new variant news started to come out. And I think we'll continue to see that kind of volatility based on, on news flow, basically. But one thing I think that is here to stay is that the, the pandemic clearly changed quite a lot of consumer behaviour. And I don't think that will... Ch- change back to how it was pre-pandemic and I mean e-commerce is the classic example I think e-commerce is now more than 50% of kind of all all commerce if you like and I don't think that's going to dip back to where it was it used to be about 30% it's now over 50 and I think it will stay and it will probably carry on increasing because people have got used to kind of trusting online channels and found that the simplicity and the convenience and it just continues to grow in popularity and that's fantastic for tech companies because tech companies generally specialize and are very good at e-commerce so that is I think going to continue to be a growth area in, in venture capital. Yep. So moving on topics, in last year's notes for, for the year-end discussion, I, I raised ESG and I did wonder if it was having a moment or if this was setting a trend. I would say in 2021, it's kind of normalized a little bit. ESG is now a solid part of the landscape. How do you guys see it? Uh, yeah, it's a good one. So, yeah, I, I, we've just done a big thing on this about what ESG actually means because you know, some, some, so a lot of funds have bought out an ESG fund or a social impact fund or an impact fund or a social innovation fund. So it's really trying to understand what all this stuff means Kind of is, is the number one thing. So we've just done a bit of work on that. But number two, it's interesting. Again, we've just done this roadshow. We're talking to advisors. Very rarely comes up with advisors. I think it's more a kind of an internal thing at the moment that we're talking about it a lot as an industry and and some of the funds are talking about it a lot, but talk to advisors, and it's probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on the list. Again, it'd be interested to hear what Neil says, but it's certainly not number one or two on the list at the moment. So, so whether that's just uh, us trying to organise things to try and tap into advisors, and that kind of clicks in later on. Again, I think we're still kind of early days. I think the next year or so will really kind of play out whether this is a, a kind of another bandwagon that Neil talked about earlier. I remember kind of fifteen years ago talking about ethical investments and green investments and greenwashing, and kind of that never really came to to come what we thought it was going to be. So, yeah, I do wonder if it's the same thing now. I think there is a bit more change now. I think, personally, I think the companies of the future will have a social conscience or social element to them. They won't just be all about profit, 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 revenue, revenue, revenue. They will be about changing some way in the world or, or disrupting things. So I think that has shifted, but I don't think it's quite it's kind of trickled down into necessarily our world quite yet. Yeah, I, I think it is here to stay. I work at UBS and UBS as a house made social impact a kind of a core part of our discretionary offering. Uh, what well, must have been about 18 months or so ago now. So it's not just in, uh, I know we're obviously talking about venture here, but our core portfolio is now is now geared towards kind of uh, having having a positive social impact. And I can't see that changing now. I think worldviews, it's taken, taken a long time for the world to sort of really wake up to this, but it seems like over the last 18 months or so, people are a lot more serious about it now it's no longer the kind of the sort of said it said in jest or tongue-in-cheek about kind of uh, ethical or social investing it's now it's now a real thing and people are realizing the importance of it so i think it, it's here to stay and will continue to grow bringing it back to our sphere 
I am starting to see some product development, but I think the big issue with VCT and EIS is always how how the hell do you launch a new fund? It's it's a very very difficult industry to be a brand new brand new entrant in, um, and you have to have something very very compelling to be able to raise enough seed capital to get a fund off the ground. So I think the winners in this space will be the managers that are able to put a true ESG overlay over what they've already got and demonstrate that actually yes they do adhere to a certain methodology and they do invest in companies that that tick the right boxes. And it will be the, the managers that can really demonstrate that. And rather than it just being a token page in a prospectus somewhere, actually is kind of, a, it really underpins their investment strategy. Those are the ones that will, that will be popular and, and will do well, I think. So Neil, here's a question for you, if I may. If your financial planners went back to their clients and said, you know that investment you put £100,000 into five years ago, it's not done very well, you've lost a bit of money, but the company's socially has done a massive social impact across the world. How happy do you think those clients would be? <laughs> no, well, no, it, obviously, it depends on the client. The majority would not be happy, and absolutely, you need to get the returns from it. And I think that's the big difference now between 15 years ago when you, you were talking about sort of the, the green funds or the ethical funds. You're right; their performance was not good, and as a, as a sort of a sector, if you like, it massively underperformed traditional asset classes. What we're seeing now is, I think, enough of consumer behavior and enough of the world has changed that actually the businesses that are having an impact are being very successful as well and again it come it kind of kind of all comes back to capitalism doesn't it that actually what's what's uh, driving the most profits at the moment it's actually probably the companies that can genuinely stand up and say we're having a positive impact they're going to do well and therefore they're going to make money so hopefully mark you can have both uh, if that's not sitting on the fence too much <laughs> I, I i was at a meeting of uh, several impact managers and i think it's, I, th- I think the perspective on that varies across the market a little bit. I think for environmental things, investors clearly see if you can decarbonize or whatever, there's a market for that. You know, People will invest in that uh, and, and they can accept the returns. I think when there's more social aspects, they sometimes wonder if there's a compromise between return and achieving social targets. Keelan, how, 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 how are you seeing investors talking about this to you? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, one of our competitors and Mark was, uh, that was on the roadshow with Mark and myself mentioned that they're launching an ESG fund in the new year. And it's really going to look very similar to their existing fund because there's maybe one or two companies that they'll remove because they're not as compliant as maybe the, the market would demand that they be. I, I think most of our companies are pretty ESG compliant as stands. And I don't think that's necessarily unique to, to Simban. I think it's, um, I think there, a lot of the EIS market is, uh, I mean, if you look at some of the things that are excluded from EIS, they're probably the worst, the, the worst EISG candidates, you know, like in the mining industry or oil and gas or whatever. I mean, I think uh, to the extent that uh, there's a lot of technology in the EIS world, a lot of us are compliant. Uh, I think a lot uh, in the ESG, the G part governance in financial services, we're generally pretty on the ball, or one would hope anyway, in terms of governance. But there has been an interesting thing. I don't know if any of you have picked it up this week. The FCA have been talking about this for some time about um, appointed reps and with respect to governance, and they've come out and, and have been raising this flag for a while, and that can be anything that they regulate in the in financial services area. But, you know, that, uh, that that's an interesting governance question that often people wouldn't associate with ESG. People often think that it's in terms of environmental or, or maybe, um, you know, have a female representation or other minorities, etc. But it's quite a wide remit when you think of it. So it's difficult to know if we're all talking about the same thing sometimes when we talk about ESG. Yeah, and I think that that comes back to something Mark Mark said when we started talking about this about trying to understand what it is 
And, and you made the thing about compliance, Keelan, which I think in my mind, I differentiate between compliance and impact. And I think everybody has to become and will become compliant. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, I say, there's a lot of what we do in the EIS venture capital. I mean, governance is actually, the, you know, in some ways, the core task of a venture venture capital manager is to put the right governance in place in, in the underlying companies. So some of these are very easy to demonstrate, maybe things like environmental, social things a little bit harder. But I, I, I do wonder if there's a little bit of confusion out there. Do you think, yes, well, you sort of suggested that maybe inv- investors don't really care yet. But is ESG really delivering yet what investors want? Because I think I hear stories about confusion. Oh, they invest in this ESG fund, thinking it was impact, but actually it's it's only really on the compliance side of things. Is there confusion out there? Yeah, I think I think there probably is, Brian. I think it's it's still early enough as a kind of a I don't know what you call it, whether you want to call it a sector or a theme or whatever. It's 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 still very much in in development. Um, and again, I think this is something I'm interested in seeing what happens from a product development point of view. And again, I think the the funds that do well will be the ones that can really distill it down into a into a kind of a key message, so that investors know what they're getting and they properly understand uh, what, what what it means for them. Yeah, I think Neil's right. I think there is, there's, there's a bit of work to be done on terms of definitions of things so investors really, really understand what they're going into. And I guess, as always, an investor, uh, and Neil, from his point of view, is, is always looking at the fine print, seeing what funds are actually investing into and kind of keeping them honest on that investment strategy. I think a kind of the positive spin on it is if there is a sector that is well set up to do ESG well, it's EIS, because there's no doubt those companies that do ESG need to be innovative, they need to be disruptive. And that is exactly what EIS is all set up to do. So I think if we're in a good, positive place to be able to kind of push forward that sector. Yeah, I, I, I think the new capital aspect in some ways makes it easier. Because if you're a legacy company and you, if you go and quote mark and buy shares, whether it's in BP or a wind farm, you're not necessarily bringing new capital. Out. All you're doing is changing shares and you're not really influencing. Whereas if, you know, if Keelan goes investing money in something, he's investing that money for it to do something, and it's new capital which could change what that company does. So I think that makes, in, in a way, as you say, that this should be an easier sector to do ESG or, or, or impact properly. So the next topic that I had on my list was the failure of Cuba. So for those who don't know, Cuba was an investment platform that str- was struggling for a while and finally fell over the summer. And... I'm wondering not about Cuba, but it's kind of interesting in our space that platforms have not taken over the way they have in some other sectors. So clearly, it, it never really reached scale. And I, I, I've got a couple of questions here, which is, does its failure really matter to people? I mean, Keelan, you were on the platform, so it probably matters more to you than others. I, uh, I think it's a real shame that it fell because um, in many ways, I mean, I noticed this very much on these roadshows that uh, Mark and I have participated in, but in previous years, you'd often get smallish wealth managers, IFAs, come up to you and they'd have liked your presentation. And I got to the point where I kind of said, you don't really like doing EIS business, do you? (laughs) And they kind of laugh and say, you know, it's a real Mm -hmm. challenge for some of them because their best clients want to do it. They want to keep their best clients, obviously, and they might do a lot of business with them in other other aspects. And yet they don't want to read 40 research reports and they kind of want to, and, they're, and their big thing is they're afraid of blowing up, right? And I think that the idea of having a platform that because UBS and Barclays and people like that can afford to have someone like Neil, but a lot of these other groups cannot, 
and to the, to the extent that we want to popularize EIS and get it, you know, it should be a much more a mainstream asset class than it is. Not too mainstream, but it should, I think, be more accessible. And I thought they provided a, a way that you could have a sort of spread of assets that, you know, almost like curating assets for people who are non-specialists, I suppose. And, and so it's a shame that, that that didn't work because I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. It, it does raise the question about what do you see as the future for platforms in this area? Do you think, as, as I say, every other sector has essentially amongst financial advisors moved to the platforms. If you invest in a mutual fund now, you pretty much invest through a platform. And the administrative aspects, you know, lack of deep knowledge, suggest, if anything, this should be a prime place for platforms. You know, the case for platforms is even stronger than it is for uh, you know, investing in an OIC. I, I think one of the problems is the market is sizable, but it's not huge. And so it's hard to get scale for a particular platform. I don't think any of them will reach scale. But the other thing is, is if you look at them, I mean, Neil, on your panels, you have a few people, out, I don't know how many EIS funds out there, Mark, you'd probably have a better idea, 60, 70. And Neil, you probably have four or five, whatever the number is, but a small number. The platforms tend to have everybody on them. And so, you know, I, I would have thought there would have been more curatorial, but then is that a platform? You know, there's a, is that a structural flaw for the, in the platform business? Um, I think it comes back to one of the issues that we, we've talked about for years with EIS is that the administration of it is always a challenge to investors. And I think when I looked at Cuba, and they, they were targeting relatively small tickets. I think you could go on to Cuba with sort of five or 10,000. And investors were diversifying across multiple managers. Those managers then diversified across multiple companies. But every one of those companies, you're still getting an EIS3 certificate for that you've got to remember to include on your tax return. You're going to have events. The company could be sold before three years, and then you've got to notify HMRC. And you end up with kind of 50 or 100 quid in lots of companies, and just the burden made it not worthwhile. And I think, and I know we're starting to see improvements in the industry with things like approved funds coming back. And I think that's a great move in the right direction because it reduces the admin burden. But until the industry is, is kind of properly embraced a lot of the technology that's available and moved away from this idea of loads of paperwork that you have to file every year, it's always going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, to be honest, that's almost one of the attractive platforms because the platforms can make that administration easier or should make that administration easier. But I don't know. I don't know what your perspective is, Mark. Yeah, I think Neil hit the nail absolutely on top of the head. If I had a wish list of things to change in EIS, it would be to make it easier to invest in the stuff. We just through HMRC, through kind of the industry, through ourselves, we make it so so hard to uh, invest in all this stuff. You know, particularly during the pandemic, you could you could go on, set up a share account, buy a share. You know, which is arguably way more um, risky than going for an EIS fund. You can buy a single share class, you know, and do it 10 minutes and invest how much you wanted to, quite frankly. So, and there's no barriers thrown up there. But in EIS, we seem to keep throwing them up. And, and largely, that's legislation, HMRC, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still a lot of work to do on that side, I think. Um, so yeah, as I say, that would be kind of number one on my wish list. And then it's ironic, isn't it? We're all dealing with, as I said earlier, disruptive, innovative companies, and yet we can't build a platform for ourselves to make a <laughs> more Very true. Okay, okay. And there's, a, there's a challenge for you to go find a company that can <laughs> do that. Yep. So, so Mark, you, as we spoke about earlier, your term as Director General is, I would say, coming to an end. By the time people are listening to it, it may well have come to an end. How do you feel it's gone over the last five years? <laughs> you always ask you easy questions, don't you? Um, 
So yeah, it's been five years, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's been a roller coaster, number one. So I, I joined just when the patient capital capital review was taking place. So obviously that was a huge thing for the industry. And, you know, I said the other day, I don't think a lot of people realise how close we were to losing AIS at that point and our treasury, what Treasury's thoughts around the scheme. So the fact that we kept it going, number one, is a tick in the box, although that probably isn't widely recognised. And the fact that we moved it away from all the asset-backed stuff uh, and very much kind of going back to the future, really, and going back to its roots and doing venture and making it all about small companies and growth and innovation and technology has has been a great move i think it probably wasn't necessarily well received at the time but kind of three four years on i think it certainly has been i might take it as a rare example of the government actually getting something exactly right yeah i think so yeah yeah and we say that kind of three four years on i don't think we were saying that at the time though well not everyone was at least not not the people not a lot of people i spoke to anyway but um so yeah kind of then rolling into yeah brexit and also see what was happening at that point moving out the eu and obviously we're an eu state aid scheme so there's a lot of kind of toing and throwings on that at the time and then yeah almost straight bang into covid and having 18 months of as we talked about earlier, fundraising, falling off the side of a cliff and then trying to help companies and trying to do a lot of lobbying at the time to try and help kind of the early stage companies at that point and a lot of the fund managers. So, so yeah, it's definitely been a roller coaster, but it's been a really enjoyable roller coaster. And I'm hoping, to, well, I'm going to stay on the board and still hope to uh, direct things in that way. So, so yeah, it's been a really enjoyable time. Yeah. So, so, so I'd rest guess you can mark your own homework. What, what, what have you done that you're most proud of? What do you feel you've achieved over the last five years yeah that's a good question um so yeah i think yeah but we also at ESA, you know our number one priority is to keep the schemes you know it's been going 27 years we know governments particularly new governments like shiny new buttons they like to introduce things and get rid of old things so you know the fact that we've survived i think four different governments in that time and coalitions and different people and, and new chancellors etc etc i think that again might not seem like much but it is actually uh, kind of feather in bow in that sense so there's that side of it. I think, yeah, there's still things we would like to do. We talked about a lot of them already in terms of administration and, and, and that side of it. Um, we've done a lot of work with IFAs and wealth planners trying to make fees more transparent. We're just about to do one on performance as well. So trying to get more information and education out to advisors because they're the key to all this. So I always say that, you know, EIS is a sausage factory. Um, obviously, there's loads of companies out there that need funding, uh, but those companies need to get funding from somewhere. So whether it's through angels or it's through IFAs and wealth planners, we need to keep that sausage factory going. Uh, so we need to keep money coming through. And I think we've had 37,000 investors who invest in EIS every year, but that's pretty much been that figure for the last three or four years now. So, you know, how do we grow that figure? How do we make that 37, 45 or 50 or 100,000 even? I think there's still work to do there. So, so yeah, there's some initiatives um, we've put in place. I think I talked about it the other day when I kind of gave a leaving speech saying, I'm reading a book about the All Blacks at the moment, and it's that they talk about when you take on the jersey, when you come into the team, you're a steward, you're a guardian for that jersey. Someone came before you. You'll play, and then someone will come after you. So you need to leave that jersey in a better place than you found it. So that, that's that's what hopefully what I hope to achieve. You know, one of our one of our companies um, we spotted in, um, in Silicon Valley is a UK company, but it was part of uh, Google and GSV had an accelerator. GSV is a is a big Series B, Series C California tech company, and so I was out in the valley, and I got talking to you know a lot of people come for demo day and there are a lot of angels there and you know to listen to their talk anyway they'd all been early investors in facebook and uber and etc and they had a they had a completely i don't care if you know nine out of ten companies go bust uh, absolutely because we all get an uber etc anyway i was telling them about an eis they couldn't believe it 
<laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean, they, they get, you know, their tax breaks are considerably less generous. Now, you could mm-hmm. argue that it, there's an infrastructure there. And there's a lot of recycling of people who may, I mean, a lot of people who may, California entrepreneurs recycle into the next generation, become angels and mentors, etc. And that definitely is happening here. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable mark that you even have to defend the scheme. Given the grob, you know the obvious jobs growth that that happens, and and the fact that the UK and early stage tech, it, there's no one in Europe that can compare, and I think EIS has a lot, and VCT as well has a lot to contribute in that discussion. Yes, good point. We get uh, we've we've had um, conversations with uh, the White House about EIS, and they wanted to learn about it and find out more about you know, what the good it's done here and how much money it's raised and and how you go about replicating it basically. And we've had similar conversations with France and Canada and. Malta, I think. So, yeah, over the years, uh, you know, it's a, it's a well-admired, well-regarded scheme across the continent. So people want to replicate it and do exactly what we've done over the last 27 years. But, yeah, as you say, then it makes it even odder that the government needs to uh, perhaps change it. Do you think post, uh, because I can't argue, I, I can't accept what they were saying before when it had not become a, a, a risk at capital business. Why are we subsidizing this? It's like tax breaks for rich guys and, and could easily be portrayed that way. And, in fact, it was that way in many respects. It was just a tax question rather than an innovation question. And so from a public policy point of view, you can see that. But do you think now that the patient capital review has been implemented and has been successful, because there were no guarantees that it was going to be, do you think that we're on a stable foot now with tax efficient investing? Do you think that the government, like uh, no government would try to eliminate this or is that still a risk? Uh, I think we're as stable as we've ever been. And so I think that that's a good place to be. I think the next big kind of worry point is 2025 with a sunset clause and obviously for, Back in 2015, he put a sunset clause in place for 10 years to say, look, you can have this thing for the next 10 years, but we'll look to get rid of it effectively by 2025 if it's not doing what we hope it would do. So we still think it's doing exactly what it says on the tin. Obviously, we've moved away from EU anyway, so we kind of get get our own license back to do what we like. So, but yeah, we're, just, we're doing a lot of work with government at the moment to try and say to them, look, you know, this is a long-term, this is a patient capital. These are five to seven-year investments, but Lo and behold, 2025 is only three years away now. So, um, so we need some certainty about what's happening with schemes. Investors need that certainty. Unit, fund managers need that certainty. Um, so we're trying to get them to kind of move that away very quickly. So that, that's kind of the next big job. I know Brian's probably going to ask a question about next year. But for us, that's kind of the next big thing to, to look at from a lobbying point of view. It's 2025 and removing that as quickly as possible. Well, well, I was going to ask about, you know, we've got, at the time of recording, we've seen the recent announcement that we've got a new director general or who the new, new director general is going to be. And clearly, sunset clause is one one thing. Neil, what do you see as the challenges that the new director general is going to have? Yes, yeah, so it's that in interaction with the government for for sure, and trying to, I guess, trying to prevent any sort of industry panic. Because I think whenever we have these lines in the sand, like the twenty twenty five date, and we, we've had it previously, where people fear something is about to change, we see real kind of disruption in the industry. Either people panicking and, and putting more money in than they should before the rules change, managers doing doing strange things because they they they, they worry about the the regime as a whole. So I think Mark's done a great job of bringing some stability to EIS. Uh, as, as an industry um, and I think we really need the continuation of that and we need answers as, as soon as possible so so we avoid any of that any of that kind of disruption yeah Keelan what do you see as the big challenges for the new DG um, I think uh, obviously the government uh, and handling that in 2025 is important but just in, in moving it to that next level as Mark said maybe getting it to so 100,000 people are participating I don't know what the ceiling could be but I, I think in order to do that 
we've got to make sure that we have maintained the integrity of the participants in, in EIS. I think tax efficient investing as a whole, that's that's the big challenge is so that people can feel their I think people can get their head around that they can lose a lot of their money and they can hopefully make a, a lot of money. But if they do lose money, then it's for the right reasons, if you know what I mean. And I think, frankly, the perception is VCT is better than that than EIS. And I don't think that needs to be the way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we touched on these things in our recent white paper, which I'll just give a little plug <laughs> while, we're, while we're talking. By the way, I plugged you yesterday uh, with your MPT analysis of venture, <laughs> with your graph, your Markowitz analysis. Yes, thank you very much. So looking forward to 2022 specifically, what do you see happening in 22? What, what do you think is going to happen that's going to be good? Let's, let's get some positives. We'll start with Mark. Uh, yeah, well, I'm super positive for 2022. I think there's some great companies coming through. You know, Keelan's talked about some of the companies uh, he's invested through. Yeah, I, I, I talked about it recently. You know, big companies were grown out of 2008 in the crisis then, and it feels like a similar time now. So we had Uber and Slack and all these great companies back then. I, I genuinely believe it'll be a company, hopefully in one of our fund managers' portfolios, an EIS funding company that will go on to be one of the next big things. So that's not maybe for 2022, that might be a little bit further down the line, but certainly just, I guess, getting back to, I was going to say getting back to a normal, but it will be in that horrible phrase, a new normal. So we've seen kind of portfolios fast forward very quickly. I'd like to see more funding come through for the schemes, uh, particularly in EIS. Uh, it sounds like from what Keelan and, and Neil are saying, that is starting to follow through a little bit. So yeah, I think the portents generally for 2022 uh, are, are strong. Yeah. Keelan, what, what positives do you see happening next year? I think Q1 is going to be a great, there's going to be a lot of money raised for EIS. And um, I, I, yeah, I think it's going to be a really good start to the year. How the year plays out, I don't know, but all signs are that this VCT effect is going to spill over into the EIS, or at least that's what we're getting. Yeah, I think I'll make mine performance related as well. Um, some people may, may see it as a negative. I, th I think there'll be more divergence of performance and differentiation between the good managers and, and the less good managers. And I think, to be honest, over the last 18 months, virtually everyone has made money in venture capital, which is good. Um, but I think what we'll start to see is the good managers really rise to the top um, and we'll continue to see uh, the, the kind of good portfolio portfolio companies uh, grown and, and exited. And I think there'll be some very exciting exits over the next 12 months. But again, just coming back to the point I made earlier, the importance of manager selection, I think next year will be more important than ever. There's so many new entrants that have come into this space. There's so much money being raised. They're not all going to make money over the next 12 to 18 months. So it's really, really important for, for people to properly consider who it is they're investing with and, and why. Oh, Neil, I'm really tempted to ask you who you think the good managers are, but I don't want to worry. I think I can answer that one. <laughs> so that's some positives. What do you see as the risks for next year? We'll go. We'll reverse order. Neil. Okay, so I think specifically thinking next tax year, so after April, I fear there will be a shortage of quality products next year because of everything we talked about and the amount of money that's being raised. Deployment is going to be an issue, and I think a number of VCTs will either not come out next year or come out with vastly reduced fundraisers, uh, which will go very, very quickly. So I think there'll be a shortage there. I think even on the EIS space, there's a risk that we'll see uh, a lot of the good managers 
limit the amount of fundraising they do because they're sitting on large piles of cash and no manager wants to either have very slow deployment rates or even worse throw money into into bad companies so i think we may see a reduction in the availability of, of quality product which it, it's, it's a bit of a shame really that it hasn't been more evened out that we're, we're literally going to go from feast to famine i believe in in terms of the the, the, the fundraising supply keelan what do you see as the risk for next year at one point valuations are going to correct and there's a lot of room for them to crack. And um, there, there are some, um, there are some uh, valuations out there that are not going to make people money. And um, we'll see who, you know, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, we'll see who was wearing swimming trunks and who wasn't. And I think in terms of valuation, that's whether it's, it, you know, bubbles are impossible to predict when they end, but we are in a bubble, a valuation bubble, and it, and it will end at some point. And I think that's probably next year. Yeah, I, I I think in my mind a lot of it's driven by macro policy and and a lot of the the you know, quantitative easings, whatever it's pandemic. So in my mind, if if we get over the pandemic and, and monetary policy tightens, that's that to my mind's most likely trigger of valuations. If Omicron turns out to be serious and the QE thing thing gets pushed out, then valuation bubble could go longer. As the saying goes, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yeah, Mr. Maynard Keynes. <laughs> Tiger, have you seen Tiger's approach? So Tiger's a hedge fund, as we know, one of the oldest ones. And they're going in with a distinctly different approach where they don't mind paying over the odds what other VCs would pay. And they, they, they're bragging about doing diligence in an ultra-quick amount of time. So whereas most people might take three or four months, they would take four weeks. So that, that sounds like, you know, the end of a, the end of a cycle. It does sound like very bubble. I think what I've heard about their approach is that they are essentially piggybacking on other venture capital firms. So they they will not go into a firm that no one's invested in, but if Sequoia or Anderson Horowitz have invested, they'll trust their diligence and invest on back of that. Whether that works in the sense of if, if Sequoia's not doing a follow-on and Tiger is, right, Sequoia are probably the smarter person in that room. So I'm, I'm not sure how effective that is, but that's a different story. Mark, what do you see as the risks for next year? I, I guess we started touching earlier with the whole Cuba thing. Uh, I still think we've got a fair way to go to kind of professionalise the industry. Again, over the five years, I think we have gone from being a cottage industry to a much, much more professional industry with um, reporting and getting more information back to advisors much quicker. But I still think we've got a bit of way to go. And I still would really, really like to see a good, high-quality, well-funded well-thought-out platform. As I say, I don't think we're quite there yet. There's a lot of platforms that are doing good stuff, but they're doing it on their own. If you kind of put them all together and added all that into the mix, you'd have a really, really good platform. But I still think we're away from that. Uh, I think that would really help with the admin side, the fundraising side, application side, just everything on the advisor side, just to make this whole thing a lot easier to invest into. I think think we've got a lot of work to do there. So, yeah, that's my – I guess that's my risk for 2022 and my hope that something kind of comes through in 2022. Okay. On that note, I, I, I feel I finished on a slightly negative note there, but um, I'd like to thank you, thank everybody for coming on the panel today. We really appreciate your time and your insights. For everybody who's listening, we hope you had a very Merry Christmas, wishing you a very happy and prosperous 2022. And we hope to see lots of great things in the new year. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Oh, and one more thing. I'm sure we send best wishes to Awood, who was on last year's panel, and we wish him a swift recovery as he's listening. Thank you very much, everybody. Cheers, everyone. Yeah, cheers, Mark. See you soon. Thanks for the invite, Brian. 
So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.